Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. Post said this. I'm going to read it to you. It said an evangelical pastor, his daughter, and more than a dozen other churchgoers were reportedly abducted while one person was killed after a team of gunmen attacked villages in Nigeria. According to Namandi Obasi of the International Crisis Group, Reverend Zachariah Ido, 11 girls and five men were abducted from an evangelical church in the village of Denkadi. He tweeted that sources claimed that as many as 20 gunmen were responsible for the attack. It was about 12.30 in the morning. We had combined choir practice in the church with other neighboring communities. We normally hold the combined choir practice from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., which is something in itself right there. An unnamed witness told the cable about the church attack. The source explained that the armed men surrounded the church and began shooting. Everyone was terrified. But there was no way we could run because they had already surrounded the church, the witness explained. The district church council secretary told the nation that the gunman asked everyone at the church to surrender their phones and demanded to know who the pastor was. After threatening the people, they became afraid and showed them the pastor's house. Wazir was quoted as saying, they took him away and his daughter along with 15 others. Christian farming communities throughout the middle belt of Nigeria have faced increasing attacks at the hands of Fulani extremists. Over the last couple of years, with thousands, thousands being killed and countless homes and churches being destroyed. While farmer herder conflicts in the middle belt of Nigeria are nothing new, Christians in Nigeria say that the Fulani attacks have escalated in brutality and have taken on a religious or taken on religious elements in recent years. And I read that story, and that's one of I mean dozens I could read about persecution. And it's one of the questions that just comes out, why is it and has been that Christianity has received so much persecution throughout the ages? You might not know it, but Christianity is still the number one persecuted religion in the world without any comparison. And while we don't suffer quite as much in the United States, although that is beginning to increase, we read stories like this of brothers and sisters in Christ in places like Nigeria, the Middle East, Asia, and uh, things that we read here are just not all that uncommon, unfortunately. And as we move into the Gospel of John, we begin to see really a, a, an instance here in chapter 5 that kind of brings about why this is the case. It gets to the fundamental root cause of persecution and suffering for Christians in this world. And it really is, in effect, the battle between grace, the works of Christ, the way of God on one hand, and on the other hand, humanism. Pride, self-reliance, the battle of works. And we see this highlighted in chapter 5. As we move into chapter 5, we're going to see the first instance really in this gospel of persecution. Jesus did flip over the tables in uh, uh, the temple earlier on, but if you remember that, there really wasn't any overt persecution against him. They questioned what he was doing, but that's kind of where the story ended. But here we see at the very end in verse 16... This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. We see persecution going to the forefront. 
Jesus has become popular. He's become famous. He's gathering a following, although a lot of people like him because he does really neat miracles. But now we begin to see the opposition. And it's opposition that comes about deliberately. Jesus sets this up, as we're going to see in this account, for this confrontation to take place. And really, it leads to what eventually is the crucifixion. The religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, because of who Jesus is and what he's doing, they attempt to get rid of him. doesn't work, but they attempt to get rid of him. And it helps us as we read stories like what I just read, and we navigate this world, and we go through life living out our faith to come to that realization that this is to be expected. So we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read down to about verse 16 or 17. I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of God's word, John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has, a five, or has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he, asked, or he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for what it so clearly highlights in our lives. The Lord, as we follow you, we obey you, we can expect this type of reaction. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. This account is really divided into two, two sections. The first section is the miracle, this demonstration of grace that Jesus gives to this man who is an invalid for a really, really long time. And then, of course, the second half, which is the reaction or the reaction of the people or the Jewish leaders of the time. And so we'll look at it. We'll unpack both of those. We'll start with the first one, which is this demonstration of grace. There is a man sitting at this place in Jerusalem, this place, not, you know, uh, archaeologists have tried to find it. Nobody's really sure. But there's a place, there's a pool of water where it says there's a large group or a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed people there. And there's this man who's been there for 38 years. 38 years is a long time in our days, a really long time back then. That was about, about the average length of time you could probably expect to live. He had been there for a while. Jesus arrives there, sees him lying there, and he asks him a question that seems to have an obvious answer, doesn't it? Do you want to be healed or do you want to be made whole is really what the, the language speaks there. Do you want to be made well? When I was a kid, we used to have an expression, duh. I mean, if you've been laying there for 38 years, yeah, 
me. And he doesn't answer that way, but Jesus asks this particular question of him. He shows up. Now, remember, there's a lot of different people there. He singles out this particular man, doesn't tell us exactly why, although we can kind of make guesses. But he goes up to him. This man doesn't make any, he doesn't shout out for Jesus, doesn't call him over. It's not like many of the other healings we see where they want something to happen and they find Jesus. Jesus finds him and asks him this question. Do you want to be made whole? And in, in this question, and what Jesus is going to do for this man, despite the fact the man shows no faith, he doesn't in any way respond in any way, Jesus heals him. But he also gives him a command, doesn't he? Back down there in verse 8, Jesus says, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And as we go through this story, we see that Jesus does this great miraculous healing to this man, but in the process gives him a command that's going to put this man on the outs with the Jewish leaders. In other words, Jesus is going to do something for him, but then as this man obeys what Jesus has told him, it's going to put him in a bad spot. And with the, 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 this, the question of Jesus to all of us, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want God to do a work in your life? Well, kind of, yeah, but... When you obey my commands, Jesus is saying, expect to have some opposition in this world. This is an important point in our day and age because sometimes when we present the gospel, if we're not careful, we present the gospel to people in such a way as, hey, just come to Jesus. He's going to make your life easier. What's your problems? What are the issues? What are you facing? What are the difficulties, struggles in your life? Come to Jesus and it'll get better. It'll get easier. And the truth of the matter is coming to Jesus doesn't make life easier. It does make life better. It gives us a right relationship with God. It gives us a purpose. It gives us a proper perspective on this world. But it does not make our life day-to-day in this world easier. Look at the disciples. They went to prison. They were starved. They were beaten. They they went through all sorts of different things throughout the centuries. Look at the, the people in the story that I just read. Would you classify their life as easier? But sometimes if we're not careful in, in our Western perspective of presenting the gospel, it's almost that. Let me, give me your list of problems and I'll tell you, Jesus is going to fix them all and life's kind of on easy street. It's better, but not necessarily easier. And the man then responds to Jesus in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps in before me. And so the man answers Jesus, and his answer has, it reveals some things. It reveals to us his predicament. He looks at it saying, listen, the problem that I have, the problem that I'm going through, I need some sort of humanistic response. I need somebody to get me in the water. I can't do it on my own. Maybe you can do it. Now, in the risk of of confusing everybody, I want you to notice something in this passage of Scripture, if you haven't already. If you're using the same version of the Bible that I am using, there is no verse 4. Does everybody see that? Verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. There's a little number four, and then it goes right to verse five. And if you go down, there's a footnote. If you don't have my version of the Bible, you might be confused on this, but give me just a minute. It says there, footnote number four, some manuscripts insert wholly or in part waiting for the moving of the water. This was verse four. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first... After the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And so that verse, more than likely, that little section was not originally written by John. Now let me try and explain what happens. We have The way we got the Bible is over the years, John, the original writer, wrote this gospel. We don't have that anymore. It's gone. We don't know where, you know, wherever he wrote the original one is gone. 
But thousands upon thousands upon thousands of those have been copied over the years, numerous, numerous times. And the oldest manuscripts we have, the ones that are closest to the original writings of John, don't have verse 4. There were some later on that added, and most people feel the simple truth is, when this man responds in verse 7, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, verse 4 explains why he wanted to get in the pool. I mean, he can't swim. He's an invalid. Most people who can't swim don't really want somebody to toss them into a pool. There's problems that come when that happens. But the reason why is what verse 4 explains to us. There was a superstitious belief that when the water stirred up, and there may have been some sort of spring or whatever, it bubbled up. You could get in the water and you would be healed. We have faith healers that kind of teach the same types of stuff today. Now, people will, and and I I get this, people will be like, is the Bible wrong? Is it is there, is there an error? Is there something? No. All right? The original gospel that John wrote is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's not here. It's been copied. And there are things, there's other sections of Scripture the same way. Little There's words here, there, that some guy copied it this way, some guy copied it that way. What is amazing is this. 2,000 years after the, the Bible was written or finished, all of those little differences that we see, there's never one major doctrinal thing that's different. I don't know how, if you look at some of the other things that have written throughout history, how many different versions and mistakes and this types of things that change it, the Bible doesn't. God has preserved the doctrines of the Bible for 2,000 years. And so we see this, what probably happened, somebody wrote it off to the side trying to explain it, and eventually one of the copies just inserted it in here. But it explains to us, so I want you to understand why, if you're, why is verse 4 not in there? That's why, and if you have any other confusion, please ask me afterwards and I'll help you out. But it explains this man. He he sits there and says, listen, I've been sitting here for 38 years. I can't move. Every time I want to try and get in this water, the only way I can think of to try and get any better, somebody else beats me into it. Maybe you, Jesus, you're a carpenter. He's probably a pretty big dude. Maybe you can get me into the water. Everything he looks at in this, this, this is just something in the humanistic way of understanding of this world needs to change. How many people do we come across that way in our day-to-day lives? If I could just have a little more money, my life would be good. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people. If they just, if I got 10% more money this year, I'd be, they wouldn't be, but they think they'd be great. If my wife would just do these few things a little bit differently, our marriage would be perfect. If my kids would behave just a little bit better, everything, and just fill in the blank with whatever thing just needs to happen, and that's going to make it perfect. But there's no look to a work of grace what God tells us we actually need in our lives, a work of repentance, a work of... We're often like this man, focused on what this world can give us. Commercials are designed to teach us this type of thing, that our lives are missing something, and if we just had their product, it would make it all better. I remember going to the store one time, and they were advertising this tape that worked underwater. I think that's cool. I mean, tape that works underwater. And they had a little display, and there was a little TV, you know, kind of showing you how the tape worked. It would, you could put it around your pipe, and it would keep your pipe from leaking. I bought some. I didn't have a leaky pipe. I got home with this tape, and I'm like, do I need to cut one of my pipes to test it? I mean, that's how bad it was. We get caught up in what this world offers, saying this is the solution to your problem. And here, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, asks a man, do you want to be made whole? And he misses it. 
Jesus then says to him in verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Much has been said about this particular miracle because as we see, this man, as far as we can tell, doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't seek Jesus out for a miracle. There are multitudes of other people that Jesus could have gone to, but he chose this particular man. There's no display of faith. There's nothing except Jesus is using this man, well, for the greater part of his ministry. He heals him as a complete and sovereign divine act of grace. And the Bible teaches us that God works this way. It's, it's, it's God's supernatural. It's his sovereign choice. But then he gives a command to this man, get up. There's always the response of the person, the responsibility to obey, the responsibility, okay, get up, take up your bed and walk. We see this beautiful, beautiful act of Jesus Christ in this man's life. Verse 9 explains the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. But now, the end of verse 9, we get to the actual heart, so to speak, of what this is all about. Why this happened, why it was done. Now that day was the Sabbath. We see this demonstration of grace in the first half. It's a great miracle. Everyone's probably blown away with it. And then Jesus tells the man to go for a walk, taking up his bed. Grace will always clash with the human sin of self-salvation. What goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Eve bit of the fruit and she thought it would make her like God, it begins that little part of us that says, we don't need God, let's put God over here, I can take care of my own life, I can take care of my own way, we're good with ourselves. That's what we're going to see here in the second half of the account. So it's the Sabbath. This man's walking around with his little bed that he's been laying on. And the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. The man answered, the man who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. We see what starts right out here is Jesus challenges their assumptions, challenges their human rule. The Sabbath, unless, I mean, if you've been to church for any length of time, you've, you've seen Jesus dealing with the religious leaders and the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day that God gave his people to rest. To step back from the work. It's an Old Testament law, but it's very kind of vague in what it says. It says, on six days you shall work, and the seventh day you shall rest. Just kind of there it is. But of course, for the religious leaders, that wasn't good enough. They had to come up with, what does it mean not to work? What constitutes work? What is or isn't? Blah, 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 blah. And so they came up with rules. There's always people that like to make rules. You've been around those people, they like to make rules. Well, the Jews were no different. They made rules. And one of the rules that constituted work would be carrying your bed. My bed's pretty big. I don't carry it around. But back then, you could carry around your bed. Now, that gets us back to what Jesus has done in this man's life. This man had been an invalid for how long? 38 years. Was his issue pressing? Was it life-threatening? Obviously, if he's had it for 38 years, one more day probably wouldn't have made a big deal. Jesus easily could have said, listen, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to take away this so you can get up and move and walk around. But today's the Sabbath. If I did it today, it's going to cause problems. And so instead of me doing it today, I'll just come back tomorrow. Can you wait one more day and and be healed? He could have easily have done that, but he doesn't. Not only that, Jesus gives this guy a threefold command. Get up, take up your bed and walk. The bed would have been this little pallet type thing, something because he can't. He has some sort of physical thing that prevents him from walking or standing or whatever. It's what he would have been laying on for 38 years. 
I don't know if they had a way to wash the thing or whatever, but, you know, 38 years, it was probably pretty rough shape. And now that he can stand up and he can walk, the last thing he really needs to do, right, is get this thing. I mean, if you had been on this for 38 years, you'd be like, get rid of that thing. I'm good to go. I don't need it anymore. But Jesus specifically tells him, take up your bed. Why? Because it's going to get him in trouble. He's, I mean, he does it on the Sabbath when he doesn't need to do it on the Sabbath. He tells the man to take the bed when he doesn't need to take the bed. And then he tells him to walk. And apparently he walks. That's going to put him out in public for everybody to see him. He gives him a threefold command, does this thing in every way, shape, or form to set himself at odds, what Jesus does and who he is at odds with these people and their self-sufficiency. John MacArthur, as he wrote about this particular part of this section of Scripture, said this. False religion cannot change the inside of a person, so it always settles for manipulating the outside. False religion cannot change the inside of a person, so it always settles for manipulating the outside. That's what the Jews were focused on here. They had their rules. You can't carry your bed. That is the, that's, the, that's the solution to the problem. We're trying to be obedient. we got these rules. As long as you're living by our rules, you're doing what we tell you, you're good. It has no real effect on the heart of a person. Jesus has supernaturally changed this guy. Nobody seems to care. But he is carrying his bed, and that's, no, that's a no-no. You see that in the next part, this unconcern for the work of God. I'm blown away with what happens in verse 12. The man answered, the guy who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. This is their response. Who is the man who said, take up your bed and walk? He had been an invalid for 38 years. He hadn't been able to move for the better part of four decades. All of a sudden, instantaneously, he is healed. He's walking around. I'm sure he's probably, you know, hey, he's not just walking. He's really moving. They confront him, and when he says, the man who healed me, whether or not they knew him, but this isn't huge. I'm sure some people are familiar with this guy's story. When he says, the man who healed me, they don't ask, who is it that healed you? Who is it that did this amazing work? Who is it that took you from an invalid laying there by this pool and made you well again? No, what is their question to him? Who said, take up your bed and walk? All they care about is their little rule. They're unconcerned about the work of Christ in this man's life. How often does this kind of thing happen? You see some guy, he's he's a drug addict, riddled with whatever. He's done all sorts of terrible, horrible things. Got tattoos everywhere. One on his forehead. What doesn't matter? He's supernaturally saved. He hears the gospel. He responds in faith. He's broken over his sins. And somebody tells him, hey, man, you need to go to church. So he walks through the doors of a church one day, and everybody looks at him saying, who told you you could wear that? Who told you you could be dressed that way? No concern with the supernatural work of God. It happens. We can get so caught up in our religious externalities that we miss the work That's the way this world is. These are our rules. This is the way you have to live. This is how we're going to fix your life. And then we get to the final part of the story where Jesus kind of brings it all together. The man, verse 13, who had been healed, did not know who it was who had healed him, for Jesus had withdrawn. There was a crowd in the place. Notice how Jesus has set this up perfectly. He heals this man. 
Guy gets up, he's probably excited, and Jesus just kind of quietly slides off. The man then takes his bed, walks, and has this big encounter with the Jewish leaders. There, this big confrontation, and you see the battle lines are drawn. The works of Christ and grace on this side, man-made religion on this side. And after it's kind of out there in the open, Jesus walks back in. We see that in verse 14. Jesus finds him. This man doesn't find Jesus. Jesus is totally manipulating this whole account. Maneuvering, not manipulating. He finds him in the temple. He approaches this guy now and he says, okay, look at you. You're better. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Within that phrase, a lot of people feel this man's original predicament of being an invalid had to do with some sin in his past. And that's you can kind of infer that from this. But he says to him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In essence, up until this point, this whole account, this man is, what we see here is just a physical healing of this man. We don't see any faith on the part of this man. There's, this man doesn't seek out Jesus. Jesus is using him. He heals him, sets up this account with the religious leaders and this man. But now Jesus comes back into him, and now we're talking spiritually, aren't we? We're talking about this man's spiritual condition, sin no more. Jesus goes right back to the actual real thing that matters. And in essence, he's looking at this man saying, all right, if you're this guy, 38 years you haven't been able to move. 38 years you've been looking to any sort of humanistic way of healing you. Yet this man comes along and in the matter of a few seconds says some words to you and you're up and walking around. You you, you don't get a chance to say thank you. He sneaks off into the crowd. Then all of a sudden Jesus is back. You see him. How would you respond? I would probably, you know, give the man a hug. (laughs) Maybe, you know. Ask him who he is and what can I do to repay you or can I be one of your disciples? I mean, Jesus has disciples. Can I find out? We see this a lot when Jesus heals people. They want to follow him. They want to be with him. They want to They want to show some sort of appreciation. But what does this man do? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Now, why did he do that? Nowhere in this account does it tell us that the Jews demanded that he, you know, report who it is that healed him or whatever. Now, they may have. I don't know. But instead of any sort of anything sort of responding to Jesus Christ, his first response is to go back to the humans, go back to the religious leaders, go back to those that are controlling everything about society and report to them. It's that Jesus guy. He's the one that did it. I don't think this man was supernaturally changed at all. I think Jesus healed him. And this man wanted to be in the right state with the Jews. It's the decision that we all have to face that Jesus confronts when he sees this man in the temple. You're well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Are you with me? Are you with grace? Are you with God? Are you with his way? Or are you with the world? And if you go back to the world, it'll be easier for you. You'll fit right back into society. You can go back with the people. You'll just be comfortable in the culture that you're in. If you're with me, it's not the case. But you're going to have a better life. Not easier, but better. And verse 16 then brings all of it together, what this whole account's about. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And we'll beginning in verse 17, kind of sets up as this whole section for the next several chapters is about the the comings and the goings and the persecution that begins to develop. But Jesus was doing things on the Sabbath. He was violating their religious rules, their regulations, their traditions. 
His ways of grace, his ways of mercy, his ways of God, his ways were not their ways and they didn't like it. And it speaks to us as to why persecution exists. Why would a group of people surround a church full of people singing in Nigeria? Why would they kill one of them? Why would they haul off those 20 people to be hostages? Because they were on the side of grace. And in this sinful fallen world, that's often the case. And so as we kind of bring this to a a close here, one of the things I I want to challenge you with this, I want you to just bow your heads before I pray here. Bow your heads. This is time of meditation, kind of reflecting on what Jesus has done here. Jesus could have easily not done this on the Sabbath. He could have easily not told this man to take up his mat, just said, keep it on the down low for a few minutes. But Jesus recognized that his ways doing the things that God, is, his Father had his will in his life, and by extension, we as believers, followers of Christ, when we do those things, it's going to put us at odds with this culture. We can try to avoid it, or we can recognize it's real and say, this is what we're called to do. And all of us at times need to examine our lives and ask ourselves, how much pushback do we actually ever get for following Christ? I mean, we do live in the United States. We probably are not going to get surrounded by gunmen. But in the past six months, have you received any sort of pushback from anyone? Any sort of real challenge to what you believe and how you live your life? Or are we too often like the man in this story whose first inclination is go to the culture of the day, go to the people of the day and say, I desperately want to fit in with this. I want to be in the good graces of these people. So I'm going to hide my my convictions, hide my obedience to Christ as much as I possibly can to avoid that confrontation. It's a challenge each and every one of us need to look at in our lives when it comes to our, our family, relationships, our jobs, school and ask ourselves how often are we trying to just hide or how often are we like Jesus in this account laying it all out there in front of everyone it convicts me at times to say listen I'm on the side of grace I want the world to see that so I want you to just spend a moment just kind of meditating reflecting on your life I'm going to close this in prayer in just a moment but to remember that this is just What this account teaches us, they were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath and violating this world's rules will put you on the outs with them.